All right, so I think we can go ahead and get started. Um, thank you guys for joining us today, again, remotely. I'm really appreciative of everyone uh, logging in and joining us for these lectures. Hopefully everything is going well, despite the fact that we can't be together in the, uh, in the auditorium. So um, I'm, I'm very fortunate today to have Sarah Murthy here talking to us. So Dr. Murthy is the um, director of the Critical Care Ultrasound Program uh, and also the co-director of the Maryland Blended Reality Center. And she is going to be talking to us today about the use of ultrasound, specifically in COVID-19. Hi, thank you. Um, so we have a poll up. If you haven't signed on, go ahead and sign on. And we're going to have a couple polls throughout the presentation just to make things more interesting. So it looks like a little over half of you are using ultrasound daily. And then about 30% are using it once or twice a week or once in a while. And 8% are using it never. So I think that's actually probably pretty representative. Um, so this is part one. And today we'll be talking about lung ultrasound and focusing on COVID-19. Um, my disclosures are that I'm not really an expert in lung ultrasound. My heart, uh, my heart is in the heart. Um, my passion is really echocardiography. Um, but because of COVID-19, I'm learning lung ultrasound with you. Um, and that's what this presentation is about. I also have a small LLC called Looking Glass Technologies that has a um, phone application that we've released that we will be talking about today. So the format of today is I hate, uh, I personally don't love the standard grand round PowerPoint presentation. I don't mind sitting through them but I hate preparing them and giving them. I don't think it's really a good way to learn. Um, I like shorter interactive um, much better and I like in-person better, but this world's imperfect. So in-person's not possible. So I tried to make this a little more interactive and fun, which so far has failed miserably, but <laughs> maybe that will get better. Um, there are a few questions and like Dora the Explorer, I'll wait a few seconds. You can shout at your answer at the computer or you can be unmuted and shout it at us if, if you're feeling brave. Um, I have a tiny audience of, um, of Marianne, our EM critical care fellow, and, and John Maddox, who's a surgical fellow, um, who said they would respond to questions. Um, so all this might be an awkward, as you've already seen, um, but it's not going to be boring. And that was my phone, sorry. Um, so right now, I want all of you to get your phones out, which I'm sure you already have. Um, and um, if you haven't already downloaded the Recess phone app, please do so now. Um, you can search it in either Android or iPhone stores. If you, sound, if you search resuscitation POCUS or resuscitation ultrasound, you'll find it. Um, if you've already downloaded it, you may need to re-download it to get the newest version. Um, I'd, like take you, I'd like you to take a few minutes right now to do that and sign in. We're going to be using it through the talk, and it's also how we're going to be um, pushing information to you guys about how to use the systems and as we innovate changes that we think are useful to you. Um, please feel free to tell anybody you know to, uh, to use the app. It's free, um, and we want as many people as possible to use it. Um, this is the app, and I'll talk about how we developed it in a minute. Um, there's also a smart tablet version. Um, we will add it to the Clarius systems, which are the handheld systems that are going to be arriving soon. So it will be on the iPad on which you're seeing the Clarius picture. So you'll be able to use the app interactively while you're imaging. Um, it is how we will push new content, including the COVID lung protocol and things around Echo to you. Um, we are developing a website, which should be out in the next couple weeks, um, maybe next week. Um, and then uh, we are also working on a Critical Care Atlas, which is a book that's probably about six months out, maybe a year. Um, this is the home screen that you'll see. Um, there's ultrasound basics, education protocols. There's a hemodynamic calculator in there. Um, play with it. There's a lot of content. We worked hard on trying to make it useful. This is we. Um, I have your first multiple choice question. Which of these is a emergency room physician who has a passion for education and ultrasound? And which of these is a nephrologist who got bored with nephrology and went into critical care, who got bored with critical care and then started doing computer programming. <laughs> you got it right. Alexis is the one on the right. She's the assistant director of um, ultrasound for the emergency department and assistant professor of emergency medicine and my um, colleague in creating all this madness. This is Sammy, who's made the app happen and is, um, as I said, brilliant um, and is helping develop all of the infrastructure that makes the app run. This is who's using the app right now. We have just under 400 users. Um, we've only been out for a couple of weeks and we haven't really advertised. So I'm excited about that. I have no idea the audience for critical care nerds that like ultrasound. I don't, I don't know how many people we're talking about, but I want every single one of them to have my app. Um, anyway, you can see that uh, ultrasound is worldwide. People everywhere are using it um, and that it has applicability both in highly resource centers like University of Maryland and in lower resource centers. In fact, it might have more use in lower resource centers where you can't get an arterial line and a PA catheter in anyone. So for this particular um, experience, I wanna talk about factors limiting ultrasound in the ICU, discuss long ultrasound in the ICU in general, 
discuss COVID-specific lung findings, and these are in patients, actually your patients here at University of Maryland. Um, and then we're going to go over some cases, again, of patients here at University of Maryland with COVID in whom lung ultrasound made a difference. Oh, I don't know if this is going to work. All right, so let's see what happens. What do you guys think is the limiting factor to you using it in your experience? You don't know enough. You can't get the equipment to work. Like you can't, it's not plugged in. The ultrasound system's not working. The package isn't there. You find the systems themselves off-putting and they're too big and you don't feel like taking it on. Um, you don't like the way the data is presented. Ultrasound images look like a broken TV screen. What do you think? What gets in your way? All right, it looks like you guys are actually mostly saying, I'm just very excited because the slide advanced, so I'm going to keep going. You guys are mostly saying you feel like it's your own lack of knowledge um, and you're not really calling out the systems themselves. And I have to say, after having done this a bit of time, I'm going to call BS on that. Um, one, our tiny little group, just our little team of, I don't know, three or four or five people, we get bigger every day. We're going to do everything we can to break this knowledge gap. Um, and I don't think it's about that. I think you are smart people who have learned a lot harder things than this. Um, but I really think the primary issue with point of care ultrasound is in the systems themselves. Um, they were not developed for our applications. They were developed for cardiologists and radiologists. There's not good ways to track information. You need two hands to do the imaging. Sorry. You need two hands to do the imaging. The data is not stored in a way that creates serial data very easily. I think, I worked hard on this metaphor, by the way. I think this is like trying to drive an Escalade up the big sky mountain. You've got this big old Cadillac. It's got bells and whistles. It's kind of awesome. It is not made to drive up a mountain. You can maybe drive up the mountain if you, if you really, really, really wanted to, but that's not what that big old machine is made for. Um, we need a sweet little gondola that takes us right up to the top, and we don't have that yet. So I think the biggest limit in point-of-care ultrasound is not you or your knowledge base, but the systems and how the systems work. Um, so it's sort of like getting an ABG. Well, is it the timing, like how long it takes the machines? Oh, yeah, timing. It takes it. The, yes, yes, the machines take too long to, take, to turn on, all of that stuff. Thank you. Marianne's reading me your comments, so this is good. So if you compare doing point-of-care ultrasound to getting an ABG, if you're getting an ABG, you just put an arterial line in and you order it, and then magically the numbers appear. That's the extent of your involvement as a physician. If you compare that to point-of-care ultrasound, it's kind of like you had to put a new A-line in every time you wanted a damn ABG. Not only that, you had to take the blood, you had to run it down to the lab yourself, and then you had to try to qualitatively describe your findings and the ICU team are attending. So you have to say to Dr. Shanholtz, not the SAO2 was 97, but the blood was bright red, so I think his stat's probably pretty good. Or I think we're in trouble, the blood was purple. That's actually useful information that tells you something about the patient, and that's almost the level we are when we're describing things like cardiac function. So I, th I think the fact that point-of-care ultrasound requires so much intervention from the physicians themselves, the healthcare practitioners themselves, is not all that bad. It makes you go into the room. It makes you really examine the patient. It's the only innovation in my lifetime that makes us touch people. Really, everything else is big screens and computers. Um, so it is an extended physical exam, but it does need to be easier, faster, and more quantitative. Um, and I think the data needs to be displayed differently. So as part of the Maryland Blended Reality Center, we're working on a new way of showing lung ultrasound. So right now, if you think about lung ultrasound and you get all the images, you have these little 20, somewhere between 12 and 24 postage stamps that are all displayed on a screen. And that's not very conducive to understanding the lung as a whole or conducive to explaining or showing somebody who's not you your findings. Here, we're just sort of playing with the model. This is going to be on an iPad and it would be on the same iPad that the app is on. Um, it allows you to select zones, and it would allow us to tell you which zones had pathology. But most importantly, what it allows us to do, you'll see in a second here, is you can see both the high-frequency and low-frequency images from the same section, um, and you can track changes in given sections over time. So once you select it, you can have the high-frequency and low-frequency probe-like findings come up together in the same subsection, um, and those are dates down there at the bottom, so you can compare yesterday to today. And you can see if we had an imaging system more like this, then we could get ultrasound closer to what we do with CAT scan and chest x-ray. But so long as it's a series of postage stamps that are kind of stuck in a machine, it's your escalator trying to drive up a mountain. It's just not going to get you up there You need the way you need to go. We definitely need better ways of, of sort of showing images, I think, in addition to other things. 
Um, this is the Maryland Blender Reality Center. I really wanted to show you Vondal Mahan. He is the artist who um, you're going to see his images throughout this talk. And he is also the um, artist who did all of the, the modeling for the viewer. Um, okay, so lung ultrasound in the ICU. Why do lung ultrasound? What can you see with lung ultrasound? What can't you see with lung ultrasound? We'll have a super, like, one slide about basics and fun physics. Um, ultrasound is so much easier. Lung ultrasound is so much easier than cardiac. So if you know how to do cardiac, you can learn lung pretty quickly. Um, we're going to talk about the zones and subzones. Subzones is a University of Maryland thing, but I think it's important if we're going to create this more comprehensive uh, lung imaging. Uh, we'll talk a little bit of the protocol here and um, go over some findings. So why fight this fight? We don't have our streamlined perfect tool. Why should you try to get lung ultrasound and try to conquer this when you can just get a chest x-ray or a CAT scan? Well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons and a major one right now while you're sitting here right now is COVID-19. Um, there are a lot of issues with chest x-ray and CAT scan in these rooms. You have to pull the machine into the room. You have to take the patient to the CAT scanner. There are infection risks and infection concerns. Um, and ultrasound can be deployed and stay in the room. Um, so it has a lot of use in COVID-19. Um, any military or austere environment, ultrasound is very portable. Um, you'll see as this talk goes on that it gives you very different information and useful information than a chest x-ray. Ultrasound is, of course, faster than a chest x-ray or CAT scan. There's no radiation. Um, and I think it's just starting to have a role in point of care and, and the ICUs. Um, and so if you're a young attending or fellow looking for a niche, it's a fantastic niche. You can be part of changing medicine and um, it is much easier to grasp than echo. So moving on to the, the basics of lung ultrasound, this is a Vondel uh, image, which I love. Um, but anyway, you, most of you probably already know ultrasound does not transmit through lung. Um, but thankfully, the lung is wrapped in pleura and so is the chest wall. So I realized as I was putting this talk together that one of the, one of the funny things about ultrasound is actually just the grammar. So the plural of pleura is pleura, which is actually quite confusing because you really want to think of these as two plural surfaces. So I will be using the word plurals, even though I know plurals is not grammatically correct because I mean more than one pleura. Um, so I want you to just always sort of imagine two surfaces rubbing, rubbing against each other, sliding against each other. The parietal pleura wraps the inside of the chest wall and the visceral pleura wraps the outside of the lung. I know you all know this, but, but just keep thinking these are two pleuras together. Normally the two pleural surfaces slide against one another. <clears throat> those two pleural surfaces sliding against one another can provide you with a ton of information. So those pleural surfaces are highly reflective and they should return back most of the signal that's coming from the ultrasound transducer. The pleural surface is up here. You'll see it a, a few times in the next, <laughs> next 30 or 40 minutes. Um, they should be sliding against each other and you'll see this reverberation artifact because they are in a normal, nice, expanded lung. Most of the signal gets lost after it reflects back. So you get this reverberation artifact. It looks like the pleural surface is deeper, but it's not. And you get this lovely gray hum as a little bit of interstitial signal comes back. It's also called a seashore, but this is a nice, normal lung. Here's what you can and cannot see with lung ultrasound, and it's all about the pleuras. Whatever you see must be contiguous with the pleura, which seems boring, but actually there's a ton of stuff that ends up being contiguous with the pleura. Um, and there must be no air in between the pathology and the probe. Pneumothorax, the pathology is the air, so what you're looking for is a loss of signal. We'll talk about that in a second. You can see any pleural-based pathology. You can see fluid around the alveoli. You can see collapsed lung because most collapsed lung is in continuity with the pleura. And you can see pleural effusions. You can see all these very easily and you can see all these in a lot of detail. What you cannot see are ET tube tips. You can't really see the ET tube tip no matter what you do. You can sort of see the ET tube in the trachea, but it's, I actually think that's hard. You're never going to be able to see a line tip. You can see a line going in the right direction, but you can't see the tip of it. And you'll never be able to see hyalur or central pathology with open aerated lung around it. So it's never going to replace a CAT scan, but it can give you a lot of important information. So this is it. There's no more physics behind this. The pleuras, the pleuras, the pleuras are strong reflectors. Ultrasound does not transmit sound waves. So what you're looking for is evidence of nice open aerated lung, a beautiful gray hum. You're looking for actually a loss of signal, a normal kind of loss of signal. Um, normal lung will send some signal back, 
And A lines tell you you have a nice, normal, open lung. These are all normal findings. Alveolar walls, interestingly, are also strong reflectors, and you shouldn't be able to see alveolar walls bouncing against each other because they're they are filled with air. But if there's fluid around the alveoli, you'll see um, a reverberation artifact, and that's what a B line is. It's letting ultrasound signal get to the alveolar, and it bounces back and forth between the highly geometric alveolar walls. This is how you look at it. This is a high-frequency uh, ultrasound image. You find the rib itself. You don't care about any of the soft tissue above the rib, and you're looking for this nice moving pleural surface on the underside of the rib. All your money is in these two pleuras, and you like to see it. You can almost imagine there's two there, now that you think about two, but you want to think that there's two. You want to see this gray hump beneath it, and you want to see these little bits of A-lines. That means you have a nice, normal lung. Now, which transducer do you want to use? There's three transducers on your systems. Um, my money had been, was always on the phased array. I love the phased array. It's my little cardiac probe. But if you want to do pure dedicated lung imaging, I really think the curvilinear is a much better probe. Um, it gives you mo more rib spaces. It has a bigger aperture. It's much easier to see the pleural pathology. So I would start if you're doing dedicated lung imaging with the curvilinear probe that will let you see deeply and see B lines and pleural fusions and consolidation and collapse. If you specifically want to look at the plural, the pleuras together, the pleural surfaces, then you high, the linear high frequency probe is excellent. It tells you a lot of detail about the pleural surfaces themselves. Um, and if you're doing other imaging, like the rush, the fast, or the free with a phased array probe, then it's fine to use that probe for lung imaging. So here are the zones of the lung. This is, again, um, a Vondel special. Um, these are standard. These are not me. These are not University of Maryland. These are standard lung images, standard zones of the lung. They're, they're actually intuitive. Um, it's one and two are anterior, three and four are along the flank, and five and six are posterior. This next piece is me. This is University of Maryland. Um, I would like for us to start getting into the habit of dividing each zone into four subzones. Now, Marianne, you've done this a couple times. It, it actually gets pretty intuitive, right? Yeah. Yes, she's nodding. <laughs> it seems like a lot of subzones, but it, it actually is not that hard. And it's A, B, C, D. Each one is A, B, C, D. It's your right to your left. So the upper outer aspect of zone one is A. And as we go through the images, I will, um, as we go through the cases, I'll keep re reiterating the subzone and it will get a little bit more intuitive, you, intuitive for you even in this one lecture. So talking about ultrasound findings themselves, and now we're moving into the potpourri of pathology, um, you can see consolidation very easily with lung ultrasound, and you can tell collapse from more findings more consistent with pneumonia. I hear Dr. Rabinowitz, who's one of our AD doctors, yelling at me about how pneumonia is not a radiographic call, which is true, um, but there are lung ultrasound images that are, there are aspects of lung ultrasound that are more consistent with pneumonia and less consistent with pure collapse. Um, we're going to look at effusion, we're going to talk about B lines, and we're talking about quickly about pleural sliding and pneumothorax. So this is a phased array probe. This is an image I got while uh, doing a cardiac echo, and this woman started to have a sudden decrease in respiratory status. And what you see here, Marianne, do you see, what do you see here? Um, I see, I think, consolidated lung. Yeah, so she had completely dropped her entire left lung. So up here at the top, you see the, the labeling. She, her whole left side, the whole anterior part of her dress, her chest was down. She had a mucus in her main stem bronchus, um, and it took us about 20 seconds to diagnose it. We hadn't even ordered the chest x-ray by the time we saw it on the ultrasound. Um, and you know that this is consolidation, not collapse, honestly, partly because of the story. She was fine and then trying to code. So partially because of the story, you know what happened. But also, this looks like normal lung. So it looks like hapatization. It looks like a normal tissue. This tissue doesn't look yucky and infected. It just is collapsed. Um, so this is collapse. And here we have our normal lung, and we're now in R. So this is a different patient, um, acutely ill, febrile. Um, we're looking at his posterior. So R6 is going to be his posterior um, lower lobe or posterior lower lung zone, and this is what you see now. So it looks junky and crappy, right? Like that just looks like a rock almost. It doesn't look all pretty. You don't see this gray hum. You see all these little air bronchograms down here. Does it look like the collapsed lung? No, it looks totally different. It looks, it looks ratty, actually. So I, this, is, <laughs> this is, I told you I'm new to lung imaging. So if it looks kind of ratty and yucky, that's more likely pneumonia or infection or path, pathogenic lung, say. And here are lung zones just to refresh. So we're in zone six. Um, down here, and it's all of zone six that was involved with this mnemonic-looking area. To compare collapse and pneumonia side to side, you can see that collapse looks 
normal but collapsed. It almost looks like liver or a normal organ, just not lung organ, whereas pneumonia looks ratty and yucky and just icky. Moving on to pleural fusion, again, to kind of solidify um, the zones, this would be the anterior left and the lower part of the anterior left. And we see this big effusion. This is spleen coming up here. This is diaphragm. And we see this big effusion that looks a little loculated here. Effusion is one of the easiest things to call on ultrasound. Chest x-ray On chest x-ray, telling effusion from collapse can be hard. It's extremely easy on ultrasound. Moving on to B-lines, and we'll just talk about this briefly because you're going to see a ton of B-lines in the cases and we talk about COVID findings. Um, B-lines are pathogenic depending on how many they are and where they are. They are these dense white reverberation artifact lines that come down the whole screen and don't um, lose density as they go deeper. Um, more than three in any zone is abnormal. They come from fluid around the alveoli. Um, and if they're diffuse, this is how I use them in the free exam, they may be more consistent with pulmonary edema. Um, which can help you determine if somebody's got elevated left atrial pressure. Um, and they are a huge part of COVID findings. It's beelines, beelines everywhere in these patients. This is just a graphic to kind of understand a little bit more what's going on with beelines. Normally, your ultrasound signal would come and hit off the alveoli. You wouldn't see it at all. But when you have fluid around the alveoli, the ultrasound signal comes down in here and bounces and bings and bongs. <laughs> Sorry. Bounces back and forth in between the alveoli to create the beeline. This is probably familiar to many or most of the fellows at this point. This is how you diagnose pneumothorax. So for pneumothorax, you're looking for a loss of lung sliding between the two pleural surfaces. So you can see here you see a lung point. Right here you see sliding down here in the lower aspects of it as a person's bleeding, breathing, and then you have no lung sliding here. So a loss of lung sliding is consistent with pneumothorax. What has happened is the injured lung is allowing air in between the two pleural surfaces. So you still see the parietal pleura, but you will no longer see the visceral pleura, and you don't see the sliding of the visceral and parietal pleura against each other. So for pneumothorax, you're looking for loss of your um, ultrasound signal. Um, and you can confirm that with M-mode. Obviously, this talk is about COVID. Pneumothorax is a part of COVID findings, but not the most important part. So I'm, I'm flying through pneumothorax, but there is a, there's a lot of teaching material online about how to detect pneumothorax. Um, for M-mode, you're, again, you're looking to confirm you've lost your signal here. So what's happening is actually after this first bright white line, you're not getting any signal return. This is all reflecting it back again and again and again. So it keeps showing you the signal deeper and deeper, uh, but it's not a true signal coming back. Here is your normal M-mode where you have the seashore sign and you've got a little bit of signal and you can see that gr lovely gray hum, and that's consistent with a normal lung. So summary of lung ultrasound in general, and we'll go over um, almost all of this in the cases and almost all of it actually in the COVID-specific lung findings. Um, it's all about pleural surfaces. You'll not ever be able to, or not in the near term, be able to see ET tubes or catheter tips. It won't replace that role for chest X-ray. Um, you will, however, be able to see important pathology, including pneumothorax, pleural effusion, consolidations, pneumonia, and pulmonary edema. It will become the default mode of imaging in COVID-19 for, for many reasons, one of which is less healthcare provider exposure, less equipment, all of that. Um, I, relative to echo, I think lung ultrasound is easier to learn. Even, even so, with any ultrasound, it takes time to become comfortable. Um, we all have to wean ourselves from chest x-ray. I think we all know that's not the perfect mode of imaging, and we're just used to getting them all the time. Um, I personally almost never use a hemodynamic catheter right now because I'm so used to echo. So I'm hoping that we get to be that way with chest x-ray. So I can't wait for ultrasound to start decreasing the number of chest x-rays we get. Moving on to lung ultrasound and COVID-19. Um, here are the findings. There's a few different uh, reports out and they're all saying the same thing. And I will absolutely confirm this with my, I will confirm this for you in about two minutes with findings here with patients at University of Maryland. So in COVID patients, you see a thickened pleural line. You see B-lines, B-lines, B-lines everywhere, confluent B-lines, all different kinds of B-lines. You see these super cool, small centomeric. It's like these little circle consolidations um, under the pleura. You do see both translobar and non-translobar consolidation. Um, pleural effusion is rare, and I think that's important to know when you'll see this come up in one of the cases. Um, and it can be distributed any which way, which is also... Um, specific to COVID, that it can show up anywhere and it goes, it will travel from area to area. It has different findings depending on what 
phase of the disease process you're in. So early in the disease, you might be unilateral or get a few focal beelines. Um, and the really sort of proliferative phase, you get um, a lot of beelines, you get an irregular pleural line, you get subpleural consolidations, you get air bronchograms. And then as the person starts to get better, you see resolving of all of these factors and a return to normal lung. So what you can see here is that, that you can use lung ultrasound and it actually I would say there's probably more data to support using lung ultrasound over chest x-ray to, to track progression of disease. Um, so to summarize, and I will show you these in a second, to summarize these findings, the pleura is all jacked up. If the pleura looks wrong, that may be COVID. There are beelines everywhere. The areas that are involved change, which is different from other forms of pneumonia. You wouldn't have a right lower lobe pneumonia with COVID. You kind of have this diffuse pattern that gets better and worse. Um, it's likely that the burden of ultrasound pathology reflects, reflects and predicts clinical course. And I think it's quite possible that we can use this to track progression of disease. Um, so this is a person, this is a normal ultrasound up here on the left, just to refresh your memory, normal pleural, beautiful little pleural lines sliding back and forth, lovely gray hum. You see these A lines. And this is a patient with COVID. So first of all, I want you to take note of the lung, of where we were in the lung. So I wrote on the, as I was acquiring the image, I wrote the zone and subzone. So I know I'm on the left side. I know I'm upper posterior. So this is L5. That's the back. And it's subzone B on the back. So subzone B on the back has this completely jacked up pleura. Here's our rib shadow. Here's our rib shadow. Here's our pleura line here. And this is all junk and crud in our jacked up pleura. And here we just have a still to make it clearer. We've got rib, we've got rib shadow. These, there should be one white line right here. Instead, we've got all this stuff that's sitting under the pleura and um, causing irritation of the lung. This is another common ultrasound finding. Um, here we have a high frequency probe. We're in L1A, so we're left side again, but this time we're anterior and front. And you'll see, you see how if you just denote where you got it, then forevermore you know where to look. And somebody else reading your imaging knows where they saw it. So you can see this little tiny round looking thing coming up here. You see this all the time in COVID. I have more images of it. It's this very specific P looking abscess. Um, oops, sorry. It's right here. This is a still image and there's another still image and here's another um, image. So in this case, this was gotten, I'm not sure why this reproduces badly. It was actually a very pretty uh, clip. But in any case, this was gotten by one of the nurse practitioners on 5 South. She labeled it right apex, which was fantastic. So I know exactly where it was gotten. It was gotten in the right apex. And this person had this ratty looking pleura and all these multiple abscesses. So ratty looking pleura, multiple little uh, punctator or sort of circular abscesses under the pleura is a common finding. This is probably the most common finding. And it's just this almost, it's, I think it's almost pretty. Don't you think? Yeah. Marianne agrees. It's almost pretty. Like <laughs> uh, you, it, it, you see all these, it's almost like being in water and you see all these lights shining on top of you. But it's all over these lungs. Um, in this case, I know that I was left posterior again. So I'm left lower posterior and I'm subzone C. This is almost the bottom of the left side posterior. So I know where I saw them. Um, and you get this finding confluence of B lines. This is just a still, but you get all of these B lines that come together and are confluent often in, in um, COVID. Okay, so now that you guys know what the common findings are, um, we're going to move on to some cases, and your uh, phone app is going to matter in a second here, so just make sure you downloaded it. Um, I'm going to briefly go over, uh, there's a teeny tiny bit of echo in this because, you know, I love echo and I can't really let it go. Um, but also because it makes the case a little bit more interesting. And the overall point is that this combination of lung and cardiac imaging and ICU patients, especially COVID patients, is a very powerful tool. So to briefly go over enough echo for you to understand the cases, um, the free is the focused rapid echocardiographic evaluation. As part of the free, I think I ask you to kind of make a decision about the patient you're managing. Are you more in a fluid liberal phase or more in a fluid conservative phase? A fluid liberal phase would be early in shock. You have evidence of end organ hypoperfusion. Your lactate's rising. Your base deficit's rising. The patient may be going to high-risk elective surgery or high-risk emergent surgery, and respiratory failure is not your primary issue. Obviously, fluid liberal is more common in the SICUs. Um, or is it more of a fluid conservative strategy where respiratory failure is the primary issue? And the cause of shock has really been identified and treated. So, Mary Ann, where do you think you would most normally put a COVID patient? Uh, hmm. 
probably the fluid conservative. Yes. So. so even though I am a surgeon and love fluid or not love fluid, but I love to optimize perfusion, um, I manage COVID patients in the fluid conservative way. And that will come up in a second here. Keeping on with echo for a minute. These are the things you can assess with the bedside exam left ventricular ejection fraction, right ventricular function. You can assess quantitatively right ventricular function with a TAPSI. You can measure the cardiac output and cardiac index and stroke volume. We will not be talking about volume status in this talk, but there are some very cool and fun measurements you can get that can help you figure out volume status. But right now we're really talking all about function. So get out your handy app. This is, um, this is, this is, this is Sammy's, Sammy's design and graphics um, and it's awesome. So in the calculator section, if you go to stroke volume and cardiac output, you don't have to do that now. You're going to do that in the cases. It allows you to input data so you can see the data here. This is the data you input, the heart rate, the outflow tract diameter as you measured it, the velocity time integral, some uh, blood pressure, all that stuff. And if you've entered in that data, it will automatically generate out hemodynamics. So it will give you the cardiac output. It will give you the cardiac index. If you've entered in the height and weight, it will give you the systemic vascular resistance. So this turns your handy-dandy little point-of-care ultrasound system into something close to a PA catheter, except it's non-invasive and it gives you way more information. So to go back to the point I made earlier, even with this application, all of this is way too hard. It's, it's just way too hard. You only need two measurements to get this data, and you have to – I think you probably have to put in – 20 to 25 keystrokes to calculate it out just the way the ultrasound systems work. And now you can't even do it actually just on the ultrasound system. You have to download my, you have to have my app to do, to do this in real time. So even though it's hard, even though you're basically going down to the lab and running your own APG, it still gives you super useful information, especially when you combine that information with the ejection fraction. It's very helpful. Um, this is uh, this is um, from Sam and it's just showing you how the app works. So you can go to whatever section you want. In this case, we're going to go to education. I'm actually using this right now. You're going to go to ejection fraction because I want to refresh you on ejection fraction because we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, there's written information about how to measure and assess ejection fraction in the app. That's again, is in the education section. And then we have videos embedded. So the upper video is normal ejection fraction, good squeeze. Lower video is showing you poor ejection fraction. Um, and we have it from all different windows. So this has two, you're going to see ejection fraction in a second, but this has two purposes. One is to orient you to the app and one is to orient you to the, uh, just remember what ejection fraction is. Um, and then you have a calculator um, and you can select whatever value you're interested in finding. And there's a bunch of calculators in there, um, both echo and otherwise, by the way, um, that are important for hemodynamic management. Um, so you have an education section and you have a calculator. All right. Case number one. Um, AA is a 46-year-old Hispanic man. He's hospital day two. He presented in sort of the classic COVID way, which is he had a five-day history of worsening upper respiratory symptoms. Um, he rapidly declined in a local emergency room. This was a transfer from PG County. He was diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, he rapidly declined there, was transferred to University of Maryland in the biocontainment unit in the BCU. His BMI was 41, which is important here because uh, every patient that comes into the unit is, is uh, ECMO is in play. So he was a young guy um, and just about big, just about, he was, he was okay for ECMO. Um, as he was there for the first day, he proceeded to get kind of worse. Um, not really nose diving for the grave, but not doing very well either. Um, was on APRV of 28 and an FIO2 of 80%. What's happening to him next if he continues to deteriorate, Marianne? He's going to go on ECMO. Yeah, he's going to go on ECMO. So this is our major point. Our ma the major debate with this sort of patient is, is he going to go on ECMO? Can he get through without ECMO? Um, or is, he, is it going to be the best thing for him? So this was his chest x-ray. Um, one of the things that's very particular to the COVID units is oftentimes your best x-ray may be two or three days old. In this case, his chest x-ray was eight hours earlier, and we had done a lot to him with the ventilator. Um, so our question was, was he better? Was he worse? It would have been helpful to repeat the chest x-ray. If his lungs looked a lot worse, then we'd lean more towards ECMO. If his lungs looked a lot better, then we might give him some more time. Um, but repeating chest x-ray is not ideal. The x-ray tech, I swear, had literally just left the unit. Um, are you going to send this guy down for CAT scan? Are you sending this guy down for CAT scan? No, you're not saying this guy down for CAT scan twice for two reasons. One, he's pretty unstable. He's on FI2 of 80%, APRV of 28. You don't want to travel with that guy. Um, and two, taking a COVID patient to the CAT scanner is not, is not for free. 
So if you're thinking about ECMO, Marianne, what other like burning, like you see this chest x-ray in somebody respiratory failure, what, what other questions are you kind of trying to understand? Comorbidities. Yeah. yeah. Neurostatus. Almost his last note. All of that. And has he been prone? Is there anything else we can do? Yep. We were talking about proning him. That was actually one of the reasons why we ended up ultrasounding him to try to answer some questions about proning. The other thing you really want to understand is about his cardiac function and whether that's part of why he's in respiratory failure. So this is his ultrasound. And there were beelines, beelines everywhere. They were all over, showering every lobe in every zone. So this is upper and back on left side, but they were, it was all 12 zones, had all these beelines everywhere, um, except the areas that were collapsed, which of course were collapsed, but anything that was open had beelines in it. We wanted to look at his heart for a couple of reasons. One is, um, one is to make sure there's not a cardiogenic reason why he's in failure. So would diuresis help? Um, so you're looking for a low EF and here we see nice, good contraction. We see his heart's beating well. Um, we measured TAPSI on the right side. He had good right ventricular function, so he had normal function. So there's no cardiac reason for him to have respiratory failure. Um, and we were betrayed by the ultrasound system, which is going to happen to you as you try to drive your Cadillac up Big Sky Mountain. In this case, the measurement package wasn't really working. Um, and so we had to kind of guess a little bit what the TAPSI was. If you save the image, you can do measurements offline. And then one of the things that's going to just have to happen as you roll these things out is um, – you're gonna have to work biomed and let me let me and Hina know if your if your measurement packages aren't working. That only matters for echo, by the way. Um, so, in any case, the right ventricular function was normal. The left ventricular function was normal. You're looking for a reversible cause of respiratory failure. And then, if you're considering ECMO, you're always considering: Am I talking about VV or VA ECMO? So, you want to have some sense of what the cardiac function is before you decide on which ECMO path you're going down. We were able to get the VTI. I fought for it because you know this is what I do. Um, so I want you to go ahead and put these values in your calculator. I didn't mean to have the answers come up, but just pretend like you can't see those answers, please. <laughs> if I were, if you were in front of me, I would make you do it. Um, so you're going to go to your calculations package because you know what? It's fun. You're going to go into stroke volume and cardiac output. You're going to put in this data here, and then you're going to get these same numbers, which I accidentally displayed on the right. So you have... We already know you have a normal ejection fraction. You have normal left-sided function. Um, you have a low normal stroke volume index. 34 is low normal. You look vasodilated, 500, that's under 600. So you look vasodilated with a low stroke volume index. I will tell you he also looked volume responsive and didn't have any evidence of venous congestion, but those are his facts right now. So he becomes hypotensive. What are you going to do? Oh, that. He becomes hypotensive. Now you can type in your answer. So your options are, what would you do with somebody who's got normal ejection fraction, is trying to die on the ventilator, um, is starting to become hypotensive, looks like he's got a low stroke volume, and looks like he's volume responsive. What would you do, Marianne? Um, so low probably. Give fluids. I have give a give fluids. fluids. Oh, it's working. Wait, I like this. Will somebody else answer? Come on, I want to be interactive. Bolus. I think that was bolus. <laughs> Give fluids, bolus, Marianne. Excellent. Bolus. It sounds like it's fluids, fluids. All right. So this will be my my entire talk. I'm changing the name of my talk next next I week. Uh, was trying to use app, did not get enough time to process data. <laughs> switch from APRV. All right. This is very entertaining. If you switch from APRV at an FIO2 of 80% and a P1 of 28, you're going to have a coding patient. Just saying, you got to do that carefully. Keep APRV. Wow, this is fun. Um, yeah, so I get that you're trying to process the data, but what you have is a person with a low stroke volume, a low normal stroke volume, and low resistance. So I personally would definitely manage this person in the fluid conservative arm, and I would use vasopressors. So your, your function looks okay. Your stroke volume is low. His pressure is low, not because he doesn't have enough volume, but because he's vasodilated, and he doesn't have any evidence of end-organ hyperperfusion. So if you gave me the same patient and he's cold and clammy, not peeing, this guy should have fantastic urine output. I didn't tell you that. If he's got evidence of end-organ hypoperfusion and you're worried about that, then you would give a fluid bolus. But you would not give fluid just for hypotension. In this case, I would start vasopressors. And we'll, we'll talk about this again in the next uh, talk. Yeah, I hear your vitals. Okay, so still in the room. 
uh, now, now what would you do for him? <clears throat> he's on, he's on, I, I should have actually, I should have said change from APRV now based on your, <laughs> based on your answers previously. I didn't give you that as an option, but he's still in the room on event. He's still in the room. He's not doing, he's still, Never mind the answer. <laughs> Sorry about that. So he still has room on the vent. Sorry. You could continue to monitor the vent. It looks like, oh, some people would sit and watch. Oh, wow. Most people would sit and watch. That's interesting. Well, that is not what we did. So it's relatively early in his course. He's a young guy. He's healthy. He has no other organ systems down. He's starting to max on the ventilator. He's worsening on the vent. On ultrasound, all of his lungs look involved. It, he looks, he's at this point in his course, he's going down quickly. Um, and putting somebody on VV ECMO at, you know, five in the afternoon, which is what we were doing, is better than putting him on at three in the morning. Um, so we decided to go with VV ECMO. Um, he had no cardiac etiology, so it was VV ECMO. Um, we did place him on right after the ultrasound. Um, he was relatively stable, which was excellent because it proved to be a difficult cannulation. Um, and he remains quite ill, prolonged ECMO. He's had this very complex course. That's case number one. So in this case, ultrasound helped us understand what his cardiac function was, and it helped us uh, determine which way we thought he was going, and it was part of a decision-making process that led to VV ECMO. This, this patient, RR, was, um, was by chart review almost identical. Um, so he was a 40-year-old Hispanic man. He, similar story, he was about four or five days in from upper respiratory symptoms, rapidly decompensated PG was transferred here. Um, he also was on pretty high vent settings. Um, he was not, not doing quite as poorly as the other guy, um, but still quite ill. This was his chest x-ray, which is, uh, which is quite a bit better. Um, and it was actually for a full day beforehand. So we, we don't get x-rays every day on these people. Um, and so repeating his x-ray at that moment was, was not really possible. So we did his ultrasound. Um, and he had very different findings. So his right side had almost no findings consistent with COVID. He had nice, normal lung parenchyma. He had all these A-lines. His pleural looks normal. This is his right um, upper, or his right anterior upper. All look nice and normal. Now, he was in the COVID unit. Um, and so... So he was sick. So when we looked on his left side, he had localized left-sided findings. You can see the jacked up pleura here. You see that collection between the pleural surfaces. You see these B lines. You see one of those concentric collections. He like had all the findings in his left upper, left two. So this is left lower anterior chest. Um, so his left lower anterior chest looked involved. That was really the only part of his chest that looked involved. The rest of him looked okay by lung ultrasound imaging. Interestingly, if we pull back up his chest x-ray, you don't see any, oh, sorry. You don't see anything in this left upper lobe. So this is pointing out what we all know about chest x-ray, which is that it's an imperfect tool. So in this case, you can see these lung findings, these COVID lung findings, better on, on ultrasound than we could on chest x-ray. So in this case, um, he too was relatively early in the course. He had, rel he had high vent settings, but in general, he wasn't, he wasn't going down as quickly as, as AA in case number one. He had lung ultrasound findings, but it was just regional involvement in the left anterior lung. Um, he had normal cardiac function also. He would also manage his fluids conservatively, um, and he did not go on to ECMO, <laughs> which you'll all be happy to know. Um, and in a few days, he had, well, within a week and a half or so, was uh, off the ventilator and transferred out of the BCU. So these are two patients that looked similar in many ways, looked quite different on ultrasound, and had very different courses, um, which I am finding, although my experience is minimal, um, with lung ultrasound in general, that I think it, it does predict the clinical course of the person. This is an entirely different case, um, an entirely different presentation. Um, also, a middle, also sort of a younger, middle-aged Hispanic male. Um, he's 49 years old. He'd been ill for quite some time, two and a half, three weeks. Um, had been home and just getting sicker and sicker. Finally presented to uh, outside emergency room in extremis, pericode. Um, really tried to die when he was there. Um, they intubated him. His white blood cell count was one at the referring hospital. He was COVID-19 positive also. Um, he was transferred to the biocontainment unit, and the moment he was transferred, he was crashed straight onto VV ECMO. There were no questions in this case. Um, and he actually did well for almost his whole first day. And, of course, at 2 a.m., progressive rapid hypotension. <clears throat> this is what his chest x-ray looked like earlier in the day. You can see his cannula. You can see his lungs. He was a tiny guy. 
Um, and so in this guy, you definitely want to know about his cardiac function, right? Like look at that heart. Um, and you're becoming hypotensive on VV ECMO. So VA ECMO is one of your questions and you're trying to understand why he's gotten sicker. His lung, this, this was me, this was 2 a.m. His lung ultrasound findings were fa- fascinating. So he had classic COVID findings. He had a lot of those. So he had these sort of bratty pleura. He had a bunch of B lines. He had what we normally see. Um, I know where I am actually because I see the heart beating here, but I also know where I am because I labeled it. So I'm LZ, which I'm assuming was two. <laughs> I'm in a left side zone two, um, and I'm in the B side of that. Um, but here's what I found on the right side. <clears throat> he had a huge pleural effusion. So this is not common in COVID. And his whole presentation was not common in COVID. Not only did he have a, a huge pleural effusion, but he had this weird, like almost um, clot in his, this floating clotty thing in his pleural effusion, which means he had it for a while. It's not at all common with COVID. And this is what his right upper lung looked like. This completely collapsed pneumonia looking lung. Now, when I've read about COVID, I've, people do describe consolidated lung. I don't normally see that. I've not been seeing that in COVID. This looks like a pneumonia to me. So he maybe had more than just COVID pathology. Um, and it turned out he did have strep pneumonia. Um, so as I said, we're quite interested in his cardiac function. Um, at this point, the CTICU fellow is there. Do you think that EF was normal? No, we do not think that EF is normal. I think it's 40-ish. It's not 30 to 40. Yeah. Marion's giving him 30. I'm giving it 30 to 40. I've seen worse. And besides, yeah, anyway, I've seen worse. And then when we look at the parasternal short, it has maybe a little less squeeze. So cardiac dysfunction is part of his story. So now we have somebody on VA ECMO. I'm sorry. We have somebody on VV ECMO whose status is worsening. Um, And we're trying to understand whether to transition to VA ECMO. This is a bonus finding. Do you see it? Yeah, this is the right here. This yeah. is the ECMO cannula. So the lower ECMO cannula is a little too high. It's in their RV. So one of the things you can do with ultrasound is find the ECMO cannulas. This is his paris. This is his apical, and his apical makes you actually think he maybe has a little bit better function. So between the parasternal long and parasternal short, I'm thinking the EF is more like 40, less like 30. Yeah, and his RV looks okay, right? The RV is important too. His RV also doesn't look blown out by fluid. So we were actually able to get measurements in him too. Um, and so this is his VTI strip. And when, if you guys, VTI can only underestimate flow. It can't overestimate flow. So it's at least this number. Um, and so his stats are there. His height is 164. His weight is 55. <laughs> Incidentally, he's the same height as the first guy and exactly half the weight, <laughs> which I thought was funny. I'm sorry, it's the same. <laughs> yeah, and sorry, it's the same. Oh, that's weird. I didn't realize that. Um, okay, so he was on pressors at the time. Like I said, he was rapidly deteriorating. And so if you cut, if you put in all of his numbers, these are his. This is his output. So his stroke volume index is twenty six, which is low. His cardiac index is two point nine. Um, he doesn't look that vasodilated. So in distinction, in, in, in distinction to the prior patient, his stroke volume index looks no looks low, and it does not look that vasodilated dilated. His map drops into the 50s. What would you do? You're on a vasoconstrictor, not ninotrope. Yeah, you'd start epi. So I think using the using cardiac function and end organ perfusion to determine when to start epi is probably the way to go these days. So you start epi and you probably would not be pounding this guy trying to die on ECMO with fluid. Um, so we did start epi. The whole conversation around whether to start him with VA or to transition him to VA ECMO. I mean, his ultimate survival was uh, low when he presented with a white blood cell count of one. Um, And so just from a sheer outcomes perspective, I think transitioning to VA ECMO was not indicated. But if you just look at his cardiac output, he was generating a pretty good cardiac output. Right, right. Yeah, so this is exactly the discussion I ended up having with the, cardi- the cardiac surgical fellow, was that his output was okay, and giving him a little bit more output was not likely to be beneficial to him. Um, and so we decided not to do VA, VA ECMO in this patient. Um, this is showing you how you can see the cannulas. Yep, and in this case, the cannula was going in probably a little too far. It's right here into the right atrium, but there was no recirculation of flow, so we didn't move it. But you can use ultrasound to find and trace your cannulas.
So in this case, um, the ultrasound told us, it did tell us before the labs came back, I swear, I didn't know about the strep before, um, that there was more than COVID on, going on here, which actually was another reason not to do VA ECMO, right? Yeah. So there was more than COVID going on. Um, there was bilateral complex pleural fusions, which is not common in COVID. There was complete right lung collapse and a socked and yucky looking right lung. He also had hepato and splenomegaly. Um, we decided not to transition it. We decided not to transition him to VA ECMO. Um, his overall prognosis was poor, and that was confirmed by the ultrasound. Uh, we contacted his family. Um, the family, in conjunction with the treating team, decided on no escalation of care, and he died four hours later. So the outcome was bad, but ultrasound definitely helped us understand what was going on and um, helped us do the best course for this particular patient. Case number four um, is uh, also somewhat similar to the first two cases in presentation. So, 62-year-old African-American man. He had been about he'd been sick for about seven days. Um, this guy was up on five south, uh, intubated emergently. He was COVID negative, but there was no other reason for his rapid decline, and so he was a high-index COVID negative patient. So he remained a PUI. Uh, we were called to do a fr the free to assess uh, lung function. We decided to go ahead and get lung, lung images, mostly because I was sort of trying to understand if I thought for me, it could help me determine when somebody was or wasn't COVID positive. Um, he did have some findings. This didn't reproduce very well, but he did have some findings. Um, it was in the R2, so anterior right side. The rest of his lung looked pretty normal, but he had findings that I, I mean, it's, they look similar to, to other COVID findings. So one out of six windows had some COVID findings. What do you think? Positive or negative, Arian? Mm, probably negative, one of six. I don't yeah. Know. All you people should be yelling at your computers and guessing. <laughs> um, so it turned out he did not have COVID. Um, this is the guy we did the other day. Yep, this is the guy. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, well, she knows he was COVID negative because we looked afterwards. Um, so summary of COVID findings based on our cases, um, COVID-19 does have specific easy-to-identify ultrasound findings. These findings do appear to be related to the severity of the disease. I think when combined with ECHO, it can be a powerful tool to manage these patients. Um, I think it could be part of risk stratification and diagnosis. I don't think it by itself can diagnose or detect COVID, but it might be helpful in some patients. Um, this part is about specific things here at University of Maryland Medical Center, so how we want to do workflow and saving exams. Um, this is the lung protocol I want us all to work on using. Um, so generally, start with the left side. If you're doing cardiac imaging, you're probably going to be on the left side anyway. Um, I want you to image each zone, so that zone one, two, three, or four. Image each zone completely first before you save anything. Get a sense of what's going on with that zone. If there's no, path if there's no pathology in that zone at all, just save a clip of subzone A in that zone and then label it. So if you're on the left side zone two, it would be L2A and then comma all. If you're telling me or somebody else that the entire zone is normal. If there's any pathology, save the clip and label. If there's pleural based pathology, including B lines or these little abscesses, then image that same subzone with the high frequency probe and try to get a really good look at the pleura itself. And you know, you can turn the high frequency probe horizontal to get a nice big picture of the plural space. Um, I want you to at least image six zones on the left and on the right. Um, it might end up being more clips if you're getting subzones. Um, try to make an effort in these patients to image the posterior lobes because they are most definitely involved in COVID. Also, because we see so much pathology in those posterior lobes, we see collapse. It can help you to make decisions about proning. Um, so try your best to get the posterior lobes. Yeah. Um, uh, Anna Carmack would like to know uh, how to best view these uh, posterior lobes in patients who are intubated and lined. Yeah, so you, so I know this is not, well, so we generally do these exams in pairs. It's just more fun to do it in pairs. Um, it, you have to label it. It makes it more interactive. So one person just pulls the patient up and you do your best to get the posterior easy. lobes. Yeah, it's not as hard as you think. Um, but, or there should be, an, there is usually a nurse around. So have somebody pull the patient up and you get their posterior lobes. Um, it, it is not as hard as you think. And I, and I do think that, that we need to know more about the posterior lobes. We don't get a good look of those in chest x-ray in any patient. This isn't just COVID. Um, and I think it can help us understand when positioning the patients might be better. It might be helpful or when proning the patients might be helpful. So to 
do fight a little bit to get those posterior lobes. I have to tell you, if you've done a free exam with me, this is so much easier and faster that you won't mind flipping the patient around. It's like half the time and like a quarter of the measurements, right? It's almost fun, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. The only, the only annoying part is the labeling. Um, So once you've done an exam or as you're doing exams, no matter what, if you're imaging, I really, I know this is like a culture shift for many, many, many people, but I want you to get into the habit of entering in the patient data so you can save the exam. I emailed you a cheat sheet, which I'm not going to show you now because I I think, uh, well, we're almost out of time, but I emailed you a cheat sheet about how you do this in the Spark machines. Um, We'll download that into at least the website and maybe the app. Um, but I want you to, to just get into the habit of entering in the data before you start imaging because then it's easy for you to save the clips. Save all meaningful images and clips. For lung, for lung clips, please, please, please label them. Even if you can't remember the subzone zone thing, which you will remember because it will be in your app and you always have your app with you, <laughs> um, then at least tell me left apex or right posterior. Like It helps to know where you were. Um, and then it also is very helpful if you write what you like, what you were thinking when you saw it. So lobe look collapsed, so that we know kind of what it looked like to you at the time. Save and end the exam. If you if you've gotten anything at all meaningful, please order a free because that lets us track things and find them and download them and enter them into Epic. Um, if it's images that have no meaning, you don't have to order a free. But if it's anything remotely useful, order a free. Um, and then say, say where you were, like, I know where the, I know where the MICU COVID machine is. So if you say where you were and that was already done, we can get the images off your machine. Some of them download, some of them don't. It's going to be a process getting all, all of the machines working the right way. But if you've, if you've entered in the patient medical record number and saved it, we can get it one way or another. Um, you're acting on these reads. These are not like the free where I read them and you, you act on my read. You're acting on your read. Um, I'm just overreading, making sure that the images get filed in the right spot, kind of doing record keeping um, and connecting the read into Epic. If you don't do this, there's no way for somebody to say, look at the images you got two days ago and compare them to your images. There's no way for somebody to look at a report and see what it looked like yesterday compared to today. So to make POCUS meaningful, I think we have to get into the habit of identifying the patient, saving the exams and downloading them into databases. Um, while this whole process is getting started, it would be helpful if you just followed up to make sure that your images were saved. We don't, sometimes we miss stuff. We're trying our best. Um, these are the reasons to save. Um, it gets images into ProSolve and Synapse. I've actually installed two Synapse viewers over outside of the BCU. If somebody's super interested in the MICU, we can probably arrange for that to be in the MICU too. But what that allows you to do is offline measurements. Um, but if you have it in ProSolve and Synapse, you can see it. You can't do the measurements, but you can see it from the intranet. You can see it from any place that you can get to the, the EMR. Um, so this is contact information. This is really if you're having trouble here at UMMC. Um, so these are the contact numbers for Biomed. Um, there is a phone number, but they get kind of snarky if you call them. They don't like to be called. Um, they really like it if you fill in a little clip, like a little uh, like request for help that's on the internet page. There's, it's called I Need It in Biomed, and you just ask them what you need. Um, they do respond to that. Um, Hina, this is Hina's contact information. She's our sonographer. She is great friends with Biomed and knows them quite well. Um, so she can help you with Biomed if you're having trouble getting them into the unit to fix your systems. Um, ideally, I would like for all the Sparks to have a cardiac package and ECG leads, and I would like for all the Clary systems to be linked up and working. Um, they, but uh, that will be a process. So between Biomed and HENA, hopefully we can get all your systems working. Um, and then, of course, me. Um, I'm Sarah Murphy at som.umaryland.edu, and I'm also on DocHalo. Um, if you want contact information generally for POCUS or for the app or for the website, this is the contact information for that. Again, me, feel free to contact me. Um, Alexis is really an innovator in education. She, she um, is spectacular at that. So if you are interested in that, I would contact her about that, like just education in general. How can you make it fun? How can you make it interactive? How can you be part of FOAM? All of that. She has a deep knowledge base. Um, she, too, is a POCUS expert. Um, and, of course, she has knowledge in emergency medicine that I don't have. So um, contact Alexis with anything around those categories. And then Sammy um, is, you know, just generally brilliant and a critical care physician and a nephrologist um, and a great programmer and app developer. So that's our contact information.
You have one more question. Yes. Yes. Have you done any lung ultrasounds on people who are not critically ill? And have you seen the same findings of diffuse felines and pleural abnormalities? I have not because I just work in the units. So I haven't. So, you know, that's part of, so 10, 10 East, but it's 10 West. Um, I think anybody hospitalized is going to be pretty severe, right? Um, I just wonder the people like you and I are both seeing vented patients who are sort of the most severe, most hypoxic, but like the patients who are on just a couple liters of oxygen, do they have the same lung findings on ultrasound? I don't know. And that's an excellent question. And so these, and if so, do they predict, you know, uh, worsening, you know, ultimately transfer to the ICU. Right. Or recovery ultimately after a couple of days of positive pressure or, you know, do you see any changes over time? All good questions that we should aim to answer. Um, and that are only going to be answerable if we store and save exams. Because one of the things that is true in these patients is that the University of Maryland IRB will not approve any studies that result in either research staff or clinical staff having increased exposure to COVID positive patients. So it means I can't do a study where part of the study protocol involves going into image patients. So the only way that we're going to get data is this sort of observational stuff. So if we can be, you know, super tight and better than anywhere else in the country and really like do our part to save these exams and track, you know, so where we were imaging and, and then we can, once, if we do that, I can quantify, like that's what, what I'm doing with College Park. So, so if, if, we, if we do this, if we save exams, we can answer some of those questions. And we, we probably are not going to be able to answer those kind of questions in the standard research way like we would do for any other pathology because there's a risk to research staff. Um, so I think those are all excellent questions. We have some comments coming in from Cindy Sue in Michigan. Ah, Cindy! (laughs) We found that lung ultrasound precedes clinical severity in the ED. Patient looks like they may be clinically fine. Ultrasound is crappy. DC home, then they come back a few days later. Fantastic. So, Cindy, if you save those images, we can put cases up on the website. Like, I'm this close to having the website up. Um, So just email me later. But, yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite... I don't want to say I have a favorite thing about COVID, but one of the amazing things about COVID is that... um, clinicians are sort of talking together in real time, tweeting, um, really doing just that. So um, that's great. And I'm pretty sure Cindy's saving her exams. Anything else? Sarah, this talk was awesome. I'm really, really appreciative of you taking your time to give this talk. And I look forward to part two of it in just a couple of weeks. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Here are references too, if anybody needs them. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thanks.